HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. This week on Meet and 3, we're diving straight no chaser into the delicious crossover of the food and jazz worlds. And I think that sense of nostalgia is what makes it hard to do New Orleans food well because people just have these memories of these dishes. Certainly people from New Orleans, like, you're never going to make, you know, a gumbo as good as their mother or grandmother made, right? Comfort food, you got to get your hands dirty and the jazz is musicians. It's like it all goes together very well, you know? Check out Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, here on Heritage Radio Network. Many dishes a restaurant puts out are created by a team. While an executive chef will creatively lead that vision or throw out ideas to the team, there is often another chef, someone who leads that research and development. Ideas, testing, sourcing, and tasting all occur through this R&D process, an often rigorous routine of trial and error, cook and taste, tweak and repeat. Chef Daniel Burns was responsible for helping develop aspects of the culinary programs, the research and development for arguably the two most influential chefs in the world right now, Rene Redzepi and David Chang at Noma and Momofuku, respectively. Chef Burns was raised in Halifax. He received degrees in mathematics and philosophy at Dalhousie University and went on to work at some of the most influential restaurants in the entire world. Before working as the head of R&D for the Momofuku Restaurant Group here in New York City, He cooked at the Fat Duck in St. John's in England, and he built and ran the pastry program at Noma in Copenhagen. In 2013, he opened his own spot, Torst, in Brooklyn, with partners from Evil Twin Brewing and 12% Imports, two heavy hitters in the beer world. Torst, which means thirst in Danish, had a small restaurant at the back called Luxus, where Chef Burns served a tasting menu alongside beer pairings. That restaurant went on to win a Michelin star in 2014 and is the only restaurant to do so, pairing only beer with the menu. In 2016, Chef Burns decided to leave Luxus and moved on to new projects. Currently, he's consulting, working for other restaurants, and developing some top-secret ideas that I hope we'll be able to talk about today. Chef, welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we dig into your childhood, as we 
do with, with starting the program usually. Uh, I, I want to ask about just your overall approach to food, just kind of set, set the tone a little bit. I want to know how you describe yourself. I feel like at times in your career, you've been a chef, a technician, a scientist. H- how would you describe yourself if it's not any of those at all? Right. Um, I think I, I take the most uh, uh, from my time in Europe, really. Uh, that was a big change. I'd, I was um, basically just finished my apprenticeship uh, in Canada and went to England just as a stage at the Fat Duck. And... Um, just connected really well with Jockey, the pastry chef there, um, and he offered me a position, uh, which was just a big surprise. And he said, uh, three months from now, someone's leaving, so if you want to like go back to Canada, get everything sorted out, you can uh, you can come." So um, that was just a big, uh, massive break, and it was also having trained Savory. I was offered a position in the pastry, so three star. I know nothing about pastry, and and this is what I've been offered. So it's like. Uh, it was very, um, yeah, obviously difficult thing, but uh, it went. It was very good. And so, how would you at this point? How would you kind of like define your your approach? Like, what are what are you? you know? Hi, well, hi, uh, highly seasonal. I mean, that's that's what I get inspired by. Go to the market, see what's see what's interesting, and and cook by the seasons. I also do that <clears throat> when traveling for collab dinners. Um, of course, I have ideas of dishes that I want to do, but I really want to go to the country or the city and, and uh, dig into what's local and, and, and learn that way. Before we talk about the collab dinners that you've done so much and, and also all these amazing, talented people that you've worked alongside, I want to go back to Halifax, where you were born. Yeah. I actually recently had someone on the program uh, from Halifax, and so we talked a little bit about it uh, maybe maybe eight episodes or so ago, uh-huh. but I want to hear about what your experience was. Did you grow up um, in the city or have kind of more of like a rural upbringing? It, it's, uh, well, Dartmouth... Um Back in the 90s, I guess it got amalgamated Bedford, uh, Dartmouth, and Halifax into just calling it that. And um, I don't know, just uh, the 350,000 people spot next to the ocean. The big thing for me growing up in Nova Scotia, you just need to live near the ocean. That's that's the biggest thing I take away from it. And uh, obviously the seafood is, is incredible, lobsters, scallops, cod, um, so uh, my mother was a home economics teacher, so she made all our clothes uh, <laughs> growing up and cooked, cooked very well. So I think, um, I think in my growing up, I was watching her more than I realized uh, in terms of what she was doing in the kitchen. When you were young and you were just, you know, young kids kind of either run around outside and get crazy or they're inside kids. Oh, were you were you one or the other? Or were oh, you kind of a blend? No, 100% uh, just playing sports every second of the day, yeah. Uh, street hockey, sort of like, you know, your mom has to call you in for five minutes to eat and then go back out and play street hockey. That was like fully... I played um, soccer, soccer, hockey, and basketball mostly. And I played um, soccer at university too, so that was my main sport. Soccer you have to develop a huge amount of there's a lot there's a tactical element of soccer obviously and yeah. there's a lot of strategy but also it's just a ton of stamina you end yeah. up running like four or five six miles every single game yeah um was are there elements of training for soccer at the highest level that you harken back to like when you're in the kitchen are there things that were elements of your uh, collegiate career that you think to yourself, oh, that kind of transferred to being in a kitchen? 100%. I, I think, um, 
Yeah, even just playing the amount of sports that I did, I think the cardio and everything, it, it's uh, I still kept it up quite well. And <clears throat> pushing your body to the limit of, um, you know, improving, getting faster, getting stronger. And uh, the best example, I think, was the fat duck when I got that job. It was about eight months I hadn't worked in a kitchen at all. And then all of a sudden you're in the three-star environment where you're doing like 15 literally like you know the old cliche of 15 hours a day and uh i really felt like i couldn't even stand up let alone you know uh do anything so i think uh yeah you just got to dig in and it's pretty incredible what the body can do if you're if you're committed to it yeah it's actually interesting there's I feel like it's either there's different mental muscles or they're actually different muscles but you see people sometimes in kitchens and they can stand all day yeah. and they have no problem, you know, going into the low boy a hundred times and, you know, you're on your knees wiping stuff down, but they could never run for 15 seconds right. and they're like a chain smoker that drinks right, right. <laughs> 10 drinks every single night. Yeah. I don't know um, why that is, but it seems like you can kind of like dig deep into your <laughs> yeah. muscle memory in a kitchen and stand, but it seems like you were ahead of the game uh, in that respect, kind of having that ability to to sustain um when you were in college and mm -hmm. you were uh studying you you have a mathematics degree and right. you're also studying philosophy mm -hmm. that doesn't sound like a traditional evolution into going into the culinary world was there internal pressure external pressure from your parents to get a degree in either of those things and then pursue a traditional career? The, the, both my parents were uh, high school um, teachers. Mm -hmm. And uh, my whole plan was to do um, a PhD in math, so to be a math professor. That was my initial plan. So after my second year, I went, did the backpack around Europe thing. And so I took two years out um, from an honors math degree. And I, when I came back on the third year, I was like, wow, this is uh, going to be extra difficult now. So... Basically, I finished my degrees, and, and I was very interested in philosophy. I took always took uh, electives in that. Um, but I just didn't simply didn't want to teach high school mathematics, teach the quadratic formula for 30 years in a row. I didn't. Uh, so I just thought, you know, what else can I do? And so you graduate, and I know that you worked at a couple places. You, you worked in Vancouver at a restaurant, and, you know, you worked at a spot right after graduation, which was kind of a sandwich shop. And yeah. I, I feel that it's so interesting to talk about these places. I mean, we want to talk about Heston Blumenthal and yeah, like yeah. David Chang and all these amazing chefs that you work with, but also you weren't always a Michelin-starred chef. At a certain point, you were just like a guy making sandwiches in Halifax, right? A hundred percent. And that was a sort of litmus test of, do I want to wake up and cook? You know, That was the sandwich shop thing. So I did that for four months. And then the big thing is I didn't want to learn – my culinary training in Nova Scotia because, you know, Vancouver has much better restaurants and better schools and all that. So after I did the sandwich shop thing for a few months, I went out to Vancouver and uh, drove out there and, and started up the career. And you worked at this place called the Century Grill. Mm -hmm. Was that – sometimes first jobs can be very important and carry a lot of weight, and mm -hmm. other times it's a place where you – learned how to fry chicken wings and you learn how to time manage you know it, yeah. was that place Im super important to you from a culinary aspect or was it just kind of like a first job that you got your toes wet well i did i even did like a, a job at a bar very first and then my girlfriend at the time her family um 
knew the head chef of that spot. So that was sort of like a little bit got my foot in the door. And that, that was definitely one of the more popular and, and busy spots at the time. So it was, yeah, it was, it was very good. I learned a lot. You also spent a little bit of time at a Suser Lee restaurant, right? Yes, and yes. he's a really highly regarded chef. And mm-hmm. uh, I want to know what that experience was like. That seems to have been, if I'm seeing it correctly, like the first foray into a true kind of deep professional cooking experience. Like that was a real kitchen, right? Re- a real kitchen. And that was um, 2003. And uh, that's when they were, we were still doing a tasting menu there. So a bit, just a very busy restaurant, high stress, all, all the things of, a, as you say, like a real functioning um, restaurant and uh, uh, learned a lot and have still have all um, good, good friends from that, you know, uh, kitchen team. The, the Fat Duck, which is owned by Heston Blumenthal, when you were there, hmm. it earned its third Michelin star. It hit number one. Um, on the international best restaurant list. So you were there during a, a very pivotal moment in the history of a very famous restaurant. Mm. I can imagine that it was already a pressure cooker before any of that happened, but yeah. with three, with any Michelin stars, but with three Michelin stars and being number one, yeah. every diner mm. expects to have the, yeah. the most incredible experience of their lives every night, right? right. So. Right. At some restaurants, even Michelin-starred restaurants, things go. They wrong. have bad nights, yeah, right? Yeah. Dishes don't hit perfectly. Yeah. You can't really. You have to go a hundred for a hundred. Yeah. How was that? It, it, it taught you to work at such a high level. It was an, it, something the level I didn't think possible really before working there. And um, the good thing for me was that Jockey, the pastry chef, was always there and always overseeing everything. And um, yeah, uh, the plating itself had to be so precisely correct, and so many dishes needed to go out of such a small kitchen that there really wasn't even time for replating anything. You also just have to do it right the first time every time, too, in order to uh, to have things flow smoothly enough. And uh, so, and also in terms of working there at that time, that's pretty much the main time when the the molecular gastronomy kitchen was relevant. It was, it was sort of felt like we had these two camps, the fat duck and the El Bulli, and they were just going number one and two around that time. And it felt really, uh, great to, to be part of it. Yeah. This, this is a little heady, but it feels kind of like mathematics and philosophy might be the perfect blend for that type of environment, because you're talking about perfect precision every single time, right? Like math, there's the answer and you find it but also philosophy you're kind of floating in the ether looking for inspiration and and what can kind of shape your ideas right Right. so um did you were you just like head down quiet or did you kind of expound on any of your on any of your past experiences when you were at the fat duck and try to like bring what you had to the table even though they had established themselves already i at that point i was just just trying to more or less keep up with the the work that was going on and and jockey did all of the well so heston had heston had these very um out there ideas that then the kitchen team had to somehow try to execute and uh and make possible the one of the very interesting points was whenever there was vips we would always try to do a new thing um so you know ferran came one time and we did the the egg uh, cooked table side with the nitrogen uh, for the the famous bacon and egg ice cream uh, des- dessert and uh, so 
you know, tried for a VIP works out. And then all of a sudden, within a month, everyone is getting it. So, so the, the Fat Duck definitely taught me that, like, if you think the work is impossible uh, for, to do for one or ten guests, it's actually not. If you, put, if you just put your mind to it, you can do it for 100 guests or for everybody. So always pushing and always going on to the next thing was um, something big that I learned there. The nitro egg that you just referenced has become sort of an iconic dish in the sense of, you know, like the spherical olive or, you know, yeah. things that just people that don't even know about food really like hear mm-hmm. that this is some crazy thing that was tried in a kitchen. Yeah. Was, was there ever points in the kitchen where things felt like they were too out there, like you were pushing the limits, maybe not for the sake of culinary, but just to push the limits further and further? Or was it always contained under the constructs of like, well, we need to make this good because we're a restaurant? Yeah, it, it for me, at least at the Fat Tuck, in terms of what I think about flavor, it was always um, delicious and always... It was surely showing a technique, but the, the, the baseline was always for flavor and deliciousness. If you can think about maybe just one or two things beyond just the pressure and the kind of precision that was needed there, uh, what are your main takeaways from the time that you spent at the Fat Duck and how did it go on to to shape what you would later do? Um, as I say, the... the um he he even has a book called it like in search of per- perfection you know trying to always be there at that level and um so that means also in terms of cleaning in terms of organization in terms of everything you're you're trying to work at the highest possible level so having done that for x amount of time i think you take it away and it's hard to get rid of it of course you don't want to get rid of it and then uh sort of the people you work next to you try to uh, instill that type of work ethic and, and um, yeah, just striving for, for doing something great. At the Fat Duck, you were doing sort of more pastry and it was, you know, technically sound, more molecular gastronomy. And then you went to a different end of the spectrum, right? Yeah. So your next job was at St. John's. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it fair to say that St. John's is more rooted in kind of old world style cooking it's more about here's an animal let's break it down and let's try to use every single last bit of it right uh but just a completely different style right so i don't think there could be two more different restaurants to work at one after the other like and and i knew that and that's particularly what i was going for to see more of the butchery go back to the savory kitchen and um you know, so I'd, I had also staged at the Saint, at St. John before I um, started at the Fat Duck, too. So I knew the head chef, and, and that was great. And when you're there at St. John and you're – it's sort of a mind pivot to, okay, I was working with Alginates and all these products like that are – sound like I'm in a laboratory. Yeah. And now it's more – here's your knife. There's here's the your, fire. Yeah. Cut it cook it make it perfect don't waste the product right um and put it on the plate there's no plate you know fergus was always like don't try to make it look nice it's just like <laughs> when it goes on the plate that's where it's meant to be that's so the plating like, yeah, yeah yeah so was it hard for you to transition to that was it freeing or constricting in any sort of way it was it was it was an, a good time for it and and it was like uh it was a great crew of people. I obviously everyone there at that restaurant 
was very experienced um, uh, chefs, and and it was interesting where whoever came in just put their knives on any section, and that's what you worked. So you could choose your section. Very very open. There was no like schedule. There was a schedule of who was working, but we figured out who was going to do what jobs for the day. So you could go in and just do butchery the whole the whole day and not do the service or yeah. So it was it was a totally different setup, much more relaxed, but also just super delicious in a, in a totally different way. That sounds amazing. And not really French in the hierarchy of, no. look, you're going to work colds, then you're going to work and yeah. you just, you want to learn? You're here to learn and work. and Yeah. And then, so, you know, there's so many dishes in the repertoire at St. John that literally every service it would change. So it was, it was, it was great in that way. And then if you had, uh, say the duck confit, if there's a few extra portions, then you put it on the bar. So the, the bar and the restaurant work in a great symbiosis where you would just use all the products up. So it was, it was, it's a really great setup. After you'd, you'd worked at both of those places and you were kind of evaluating what your next step would be, did either one of them influence your next decision more or did you just kind of look for the best opportunity and that's how it happened? Well, it was like, I, I really thought I would do a few years in England and then just go back to Canada and, and try, you know, try something out, work somewhere. Um, but I, I really didn't, when I was finished at St. John, I really didn't feel like going back yet. Um, and the biggest, the big connection was Matt Orlando, who um, also worked at the Fat Duck for a brief period um, when I was there. And then he had gone to Noma, um, and when I was done at St. John, I, I had eaten there once, uh, and I just called him up and said, listen, if you guys need uh, help over there, I'd, I'd be more than willing to uh, to come over. So that, that's how the next move happened, yeah. And so you made the call. You flew to Copenhagen. <laughs> yeah. What did you expect you were getting yourself into? It was... Uh, it was early on, in, early on yeah. in the Noma kind of takeover explosion totally. in the culinary world. Did you think that it would become what it become? We didn't. We No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, we were still doing three or four courses uh, choice at lunchtime and, and, you know, not, not busy early in the week um, to see people starting to take note and, um, uh, you know, having to start to do tasting menus at lunch. And it was just a very organic but quite rapid um, progression in terms of people. I mean, no one ever went to Copenhagen when they visited Europe before, certainly not in 2006. So the fact that, um, you know, one restaurant can change how people basically, you know, dine and travel, it's, it's pretty incredible what what all happened there. Because you've just been at so many places that have that have been so successful, I'm wondering if you think that each place just has its own secret sauce that's not replicable, that just makes that place special, mm-hmm. or do they all share a specific set of DNA that allow them to reach the... <laughs> critical acclaim that they've reached for me the biggest thing and it's also i think true with uh, heston at the fat duck is that every guest who enters the the building we need to make them happy we need to make sure they have an amazing experience and we need to um do everything in our ability for that every working moment is is for the enjoyment of the guests and if you take that out of your mind at any point as a chef or 
have this like, oh, we don't care what they think idea, then uh, you're just not going to f- be successful. Um, so I think that's sort of a DNA of the best restaurants are mostly focused on the end experience for the guests and how that can be improved every day. A lot of these uh, two and three Michelin star restaurants around the world, they turn away hundreds, if not thousands of resumes now every single year. Part of that has to do with uh, Instagram and Netflix and food TV. It's just people are, they want to go work at all these restaurants as a, as a career path. Yeah. Um, and also maybe just to say that they work there. But, yeah. uh, but back when you started at Noma, was it, was it uncommon for, to do what you did, which was you'd worked at two places in England, the, some of the best in mm-hmm. the world, mm-hmm. and then you jumped over to Copenhagen where yeah. no one was going. So um, what was it specifically that besides Matt Orlando and besides mm-hmm. Renee, you know, obviously now people talk about him in these, these genius like terms, like mm-hmm. what did you see there that really like grabbed you? Well, I mean, the fact that Matt was super into it and that was, that was the big, one of the big things. And Traveled and ate around Denmark for one week, uh, sort of six or eight months before I actually moved there. And it was like, wow, there's like all all the chefs there at that time. They're all they were all like late twenties, early thirties. You know, there's it was a young, vibrant kitchen um, and culinary scene there. And I was like, wow, this is super exciting. It's got to be uh, it's got to be something I, I want to check into. Yeah. Did you see any specific points when either? Th- things that you were creating and putting on the menu uh they were getting noticed or everyone was just kind of stepping their game up or you saw a different type of clientele like when did things really start to change where you were you know there are restaurants that start off with a bang and just everyone knows about them they have michelin stars they have lines out the door Mm -hmm. there are other places that are like a slow burn Mm -hmm. What was Noma like in the beginning when you were there? For for me, it was, I think, 2007, where dish after dish, Renee was just um, making what seemed like world-class, insane, new idea things. And and I think that was really this the point when people started to come and, and more often. And then, and then um, the best, the, you know, the most interesting part for me in our re- working relationship with Renee was that... Um, he would give me one or two uh, ingredient ideas, and then I could go and and test out anything for a new dish. So I wasn't he wasn't saying you need to make a mousse of this, uh, ice cream of that, and all that. So that was um, that's what kept things super interesting for me as well. the The flavors were thought of, and then I could make the the dish afterwards. Yeah, it's almost like every chef's and even home cook's dream, which is you've got access to any ingredient you want and you've got sort of an open-ended runway to 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 launch from and really there's infinite possibilities Mm -hmm. it's exciting but also without any true constraints whatsoever besides like make it taste good and maybe don't fly everything in from a different country is that and was that overwhelming for you to have – you've got Renee next to you. His mind is exploding with ideas. The plates that are coming out are good. And you've also got this free reign. Is that – was that exciting for you or was it was it kind of terrifying? It, it Very exciting and in terms of, you know, the <clears> – <throat> artistically when there's the constraints put on, uh, you know, sometimes greater things can come out. And we were working ultra-seasonally and with 
at that time than just Nordic ingredients. So, so we had to really, um, you know, manipulate, ferment. You have to think about the winter coming up and what actually are you going to do dessert-wise for that. Was there a specific early dish that you created that you felt this is it, like I'm at a level that I that I want to be at? What, did it take you a while to get there or were there things that were just locked in right from the beginning that you really felt like you were putting out the best things that you'd ever done? Um, the, the We used to do the projects uh, back in the day and, and at one point we were doing every day and it finally went to like once a week and things like that but there was a dish with um, beetroot and rhubarb as a dessert uh, and the plated version of it was actually uh, accepted for the menu so that was like pretty big breakthrough moment where a lot of times there'd be like an element of the dish that was presented as a project that that could get used and um so yeah that was a big moment but um uh i think the um yeah some of some of the desserts that we created over the time really had they were so to the place uh like there was one with pine and blueberries that were people were just like you know, you can imagine walking through the forest and smelling, you know. So there there were some really Nordic-type uh, flavors that were really hit home with a lot of people who ate there, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to start talking uh, more about coming back to the United States, some projects here, and, uh, of course, what you're working on right now. Stick with us for the second half of The Line here on Heritage Radio. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history, and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org slash events. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. My guest today is Chef Daniel Burns. He's worked at some of the best restaurants in the world. He's worked at Noma, Momofuku, St. John. And before the break, we were talking about really R&D and dish creation and all these unbelievable products that you can work with. And I want to jump off the second half of the show by talking, by digging a little bit deeper into some kind of like the nerdier scientific aspects of ice cream, which I know you're super into. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people can make ice cream now at home and the home R&D process is like 
kind of similar, but basically what most people do is they create just a base yep. and then you add a little bit of flavor to the base, right? right? So you've got one base and, oh, I add a little chocolate, I add a little strawberries, right? Yeah. You are very serious about ice cream mm-hmm. and I know that there's all these different ways to create stabilizers. Mm-hmm. Um, for those that are listening that aren't really familiar with the process, can you talk a little bit about fats and sugars and waters and why first off why you're so into ice cream and then also what are some of the ways that you stabilize it and like cool things that you do to make your ice cream right so the the initial standpoint was uh the fat duck was the start where we did um a la carte and tasting menu when i was first there and we did 14 um ice creams for lunch and 10 for dinner so it's like wow there's a whole section of ice cream it's like Oh, this is insane. Yeah. So that was the initial, uh, what got me super interested in it. And then, so gelato versus ice cream is the big, um, big differentiator that I'm, I'm in, more interested in, um, gelato whereby it has less fat. It has that sort of elastic texture, um, that you can't make a, a, a canal out of it, or it's not hard enough to make, you know, scoop it like a, like a old school ice cream. And, um, so then the, the different sugars that you use uh, are play a key factor. There's dextrose powder and glucose powder always in gelato. Um, and then for the most part, well, gelato has three different um, bases that you would make. Uh, white base, yellow base, and chocolate base. So the yellow has eggs, um, which much less than a, an old school um, ice cream, American style ice cream. Uh, and then, so the stabilizers are, uh, so I did do a tour around Italy to, um, to the, some of the Italian, uh, gelato masters and everyone uses the same, uh, ratio of stabilizer. It's, it's carob and guar. So carob is actually a native plant that grows in Sicily. That's why they use that. And then guar. So it's a two to one ratio of those two. And in terms of the percentage of the whole base is about between uh, about 0.5% will stabilize everything. So stabilizers is a big uh, scary word here in, uh, in North America. And, um, uh, but that amount is sort of in, in negligible in terms of uh, health and, and, and ideas about that. So. And so you've, over the years, you've made tons and tons of flavors and styles and manipulated them in different ways. But is there one or two that really just, you think to yourself, I just really nailed this one. Like this flavor is so intense or it's so, is that version of that specific item that I'm just so happy with the way that it turned out. Right. There was one, the walnut ice cream at Noma was one that uh, we did for a long time. And that Mm -hmm. was... uh, that wasn't a gelato style, but it was from the Paco Jet. We did all everything Paco Jet there, um, and then, but it was almost like a soft serve style uh, ice cream. Like that, yeah, people dug it. The Paco Jet is really cool, right? It, it basically it allows you. Well, you can describe it. It's- yeah. Well, the Paco Jet. So there's two. Obviously, with gelato, you, it's called a batch freezer. So you put the the liquid product in. It churns it. And the technology of those, you can imagine in the modern day, it's basically you don't have to think of anything. It beeps at you when it's ready and take it out. Mm-hmm. Like you, it's hard to mess it up. Um, the PacoJet sort of splits the freezing and the churning into two different steps. So 
Paco Jet's probably 3500 4000 So people buy it, but the one problem that they don't think about is how fast does it take the one liter beaker to freeze down? If you put it in a normal uh, minus 10, 14 Celsius freezer, it takes probably four hours or so. But if you have a blast freezer, it can take much less time. So the crystals are going to form more quickly, uh, more prevalently, uh, the, um, the longer it takes to freeze down. So a blast freezer in combination with the PacoJet is the way to go. Uh, and you want to churn it from between minus 30 and 40 Celsius for like the best use and best end product with PacoJet. I think some people that have never been in the kitchen or have never worked at the type of places that you have been, they, they want to know just what is a, like a normal maybe day-to-day like when you were doing R&D. Um, Maybe at, at Mamafuku is a good place to kind of talk about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you spent a couple years there, and uh, you came in at a time where it was they, there were already some established restaurants, but there was also like tremendous growth going on, right. um, and it became a very big company very quickly. <laughs> yeah. uh, can you talk a little bit about what your role was there, and then maybe like how it changed over time, and how you were developing things for maybe different restaurants, but also potentially for wholesale, whatever you were working on? Yeah, it was an interesting mix. When I first started, um, I, I kept trying to ask uh, Chang, like, okay, what do you, you know, before, first few weeks before starting, he's like, what am I going to be, you know, what are we going to be doing here? Like, I want to do some research. And he's like, no, nah, we'll figure it out. And uh, so it was mostly dish development at the start. Um, and then, uh, you know, then we the dish would get approved, and then we try to figure out okay, does it work best at Sambar Co, uh, the different places, and um, in the end, like not tons of dishes ever fully got on. Maybe parts of it got used, or the, so that that after a fairly short period of time, realized okay, this is not the the perfect way to go about it, and that's when we started more into the fermentation and the um, with Dan Felder, uh, who was who was my assistant at the time, and. Uh, uh, so developing the koji and just trying to figure out all the the different things of how we can make uh, misos out of things that are not soy and and um, so that that was a really great uh, process starting with the jankiest of setups at the start and then trying to refine things more each time. And where were you working at the start? Were you in the basement of one of the restaurants? No, or it was you had a private kitchen somewhere. Yeah, it was in the old office space on Tenth. Okay. Between between first and second, so it was like right around the corner from Co Noodle Bar, so that was great. Yeah, and a normal day like that, do you come in and are is there a meeting with anyone, and then you maybe that day you're working on uh, a sauce, or is it really just free form, like you're just kind of throwing ideas out there, and then there's tastings, and maybe we, sometimes things stick. Yeah, we would we would sort of do like a weekly meeting and and. Uh, have like this is what we should be working on this week and you know re reassess things we worked on in the past the biggest thing um dave always said is just like it's mostly about failure you know like just keep just keep testing things and and the failures will help with how we move forward and uh yeah it's not about you're not going to get a a positive result every day that you work in in this type of uh, experimentation kitchen so it was you know, not not hard to stay motivated, but it was um, failure is part of it, a big part of it. Yeah, it's not the most 
traditional setup, not every restaurant group has the ability to even have sort of an, an R&D team. There are plenty of restaurant groups that have five, six, whatever restaurants. They operate fairly like a silo. Maybe the executive chefs talk about dishes and sourcing, and maybe there's uh, you know an overarching uh, executive team that leads it from a financial side, right? But right. I wonder was inside the Momofuku group, was there ever kind of uh, butting heads between creatively like chefs at restaurants saying like okay i got this sauce coming at me from chef daniel at the r&d kitchen like i'm doing my own thing here and dave's coming in and telling me to change this because of the the r&d team that i never see you know like it was that weird it it was weird and it was a big reason why i was just like i think we should steer away from this you know like um of course i wanted to help in any way that i could and um that was a big that was a big uh factor of I got along well with all the the different the teams at all the restaurants but uh it w- it made much more sense moving forward to work on other things than just just dishes but so to your point though maybe it would be better let's make a sauce or a sorbet or something so one element of a dish that we could pass on and then they could make the di- like the full dish afterwards so Momofuku has been lucky i shouldn't say lucky they they've been successful in the sense that they've been able to spin off aspects of things that have been developed in the restaurants and then make the translation to like mass market production and uh, I, is it huzon is that <laughs> huzon, yeah, yeah and so can you talk a little bit about that product and if any of that was kind of born out of things that you were working on and also what was it like to go from being like a chef on the line uh-huh. and doing things that were really tied to the restaurant, and I assume being in the same kitchen as the restaurant, mm-hmm. to being this kind of like mercenary guy in a satellite kitchen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, so we did a few sauces for like William Sonoma back in the day when I was yeah. there too. And that, I mean, that's like you, you develop the recipe and then you have to have it co-pack, you know, you have to have a, someone make it in, in big scale. So mm-hmm. that was interesting. That was the first time I had seen this is the flavor we want, and then how do you make it at scale? So that that was that was pretty cool to see. And then um, the other products that they still make today is, as I say, starting from okay, how are we going to make miso? You know, just the very very rudimentary um, uh, fermentation testing that we were doing, and then honing it in, honing it in to to finally have these really really cool products. Was there a time when you felt that either you'd the Momofuku experience had run its course or did you feel like you wanted to pursue something else and were you conflicted about leaving Momofuku or did the timing feel right the, well it and also I met uh Chang uh, my last week at Noma so that was that was a nice crossover mm-hmm. like so that that's what brought me to New York obviously and then but at the same time I felt ready to do my own spot Right after I was leaving Noma, I was like, "Okay, I'm I'm ready to go." And this was just, first of all, opportunity in New York. It was like, I, I think as a chef, you should at least try for it. You know, mm-hmm. go for it. And um, and since it wasn't head chef of any of the restaurants, that was like a nice in between thing where it's like I'm doing a very interesting job, but I'm not like a head chef of anyone else's spot. So yeah, basically, upon leaving Momofuku, I was hoping that. Um, I could eventually do my own spot, and turns out that it it happened uh, fairly short time afterwards that we found the 
the spot in Greenpoint and, and all that happened, yeah. How did that all come together? You had the type of resume that I'm sure plenty of people would be have been attracted to opening up a restaurant with you. There's always an element of fundraising and uh, pitching yourself that, that anyone at any level has to do. Was it easy for you to connect with uh, your future business partners and uh, and how did it come together in terms of it being really a beer-centric project that mm-hmm. then had a restaurant in the back mm-hmm. that ended up getting critical acclaim? Mm-hmm. But I imagine at the beginning it was really folks were talking about the beer, right? The beer. Yeah. yeah, it was. And uh, well, yep. And I met uh, soon after he moved to New York. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, the, the opportunity, he, he had always thought about opening a bar upon moving to uh, to the city. And uh, the big thing was, he's like, okay, if we do this thing together, the biggest thing you need to think about is that no, there's going to be no wine. So go away, think about it. If you want to do this wacky idea then then let's do it but it has to be there's nowhere in between you know if we would have had one white and one red offered it it would have totally destroyed the point of uh we're actually trying to i mean the big thing is we wanted to educate people about how to pair uh beer with food so um it was a big part of the project and whether others may have thought about it at the beginning it really elevated people's understanding and appreciation of beer which people had sort of relegated to the i'm gonna drink it just to kind of get drunk and have a it wasn't considered a classy beverage right like it wasn't i still think in a lot of people's minds it isn't Um, yeah but at least to get um people exposed to all the different styles of beer Mm -hmm. and the most interesting as a as i've always um pointed out is that beer you can add beetroot or chocolate or chilies you, you can't do that with wine so the 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 amount of flavors possible in the beer world are, are literally infinite and then you have all that to choose from once you make a dish so yeah it actually seems like it would be easier to pair it because you're starting from almost zero you can go to whatever brewer you're trying to work with and say i've got this great dish idea and work yeah. backwards as yeah. opposed to saying Okay, we've got this, we've got this wine list, and like you got to pick one of these twenty wines, yeah. and like this dish doesn't go with Syrah, but recommend the Syrah for this dish because it's the closest thing that we have, right? Right. right. Um, so that must have been really exciting for you because you're both kind of like these mad scientists in your separate laboratories, and then you can kind of come together and say like I've got this progression, yeah. or you've got these beers, like can we match up meat somewhere in the right. middle, right? And you can do super interesting unique pairings too where um you know where it might be unexpected as to how the flavors come together as well so yeah i mean i don't have any really any experience in this in regard of brewing but i just did recently like uh work we we do the food at grim brewery and so i spend a lot of time inside smelling the beers and watching them work i don't quite really understand what they're doing it's very complex but it is really interesting to see how they approach the act of making beer in the exact same way that a chef approaches dish construction. Mm-hmm. Uh, wine, you sort of like you get the product and you have to kind of tweak it a little bit and make it something good. But beer, you're really like starting with just water and yeah. hops and right. you can go in any direction. So um, did you at Taurus, did you guys lean on each other um, 
and collaborate like on a daily basis? Like how did it exist as a bar up front and a restaurant and back? And and you as also a partner, you had a say in everything, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The 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 main thing for the pairings was uh, working with uh, Joey uh, Joey Pepper, one of the bartenders, and so we would. Well, I would try to have him taste as much as I could for when the new new dish was coming on, and then we would order in a few different um, beers to try out, and then and then take it from there. And obviously, we focused on doing bottle uh, pairings as opposed to, you know, if the keg is on the main draft line, we don't want to run out of it for the the duration of the dish. So, yeah, it was very it was a cool process. So you open this restaurant. It's in Greenpoint. It's not necessarily in the most visible literally not that visible like you kind of like double hit it like you hit it in the back of a spot in greenpoint <laughs> um and yet you attract a lot of attention and you garner a michelin star how did that feel for you to have been for what had been a very long career up until that point mm-hmm. working with so many talented people but you had you had really not stepped out on your own on the stage in the way that you did at tour. So right. how did it feel when that type of recognition came in? Well, it was something like I don't think you can think about when you open up. It's like oh, we're going for Michelin star. I definitely was not thinking that. And um, uh, obviously, to get it at the first chance was um, yeah. I mean, it's just a very special thing. I think any chef would would admit to that um and then in terms of the business aspect yeah more people will come in more people will willing to make the trek from manhattan or other places to finally go to greenpoint to to check out the restaurant so from the business standpoint it's also uh, was a was a key thing that happened do you feel like at tourist it was the most uh realized version of the food that you've always wanted to do did your style change at all once you opened tourist or did you feel like you had kind of solidified your identity as a chef at that point well it was you know after europe definitely the seasonality was the biggest thing for me and local for the most part um was also a big factor and it was it was nice to have both tourist and luxus whereby um, the bar food that we did at Torst was sort of a, a compilation of some Danish. We made the Danish rye bread and, and um, smoked fish and things like that. And then also a few more English things where we did the Sunday roast every Sunday and, and uh, Welsh rarebit and things like that. So it was fun to have the more casual food and then also do the, the tasty menu thing as well. So You're... You've now left that that project. Yeah. Uh, you left a little while ago, and you've been working on doing some consulting for folks. And I'm curious, now that you have a little bit of distance from that project, which was so successful, and you put a lot into it over about a, a four- or five-year span, when you think about your next steps, do you think about it in terms of uh, tourist and, and thinking of, okay, I'd like to do a singular project or... Do you ever think about uh, some other guys that you've worked with that I'm sure you're still in close touch with that have kind of gone a completely different route, which is um, really open, 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 lots of things in a lot of different countries, grow a team at a certain point. um, It's more of a it's more of a company than it is 
being a chef, it's more of like a CEO forward facing role. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are there interesting parts of both of those to you anymore now that you've done, now that you're doing more like consulting and kind of one-off projects that are not your own? Mm-hmm. There are definitely, I think that's basically the, where I'm at right now, which, which way should I go? What should I do? Having just done the chef's club residency for the six weeks, it's just like, wow, I really want to get <laughs> back in the kitchen. This is awesome. And, and, uh, basically doing very similar to the Luke's food that we used to do. But, um, so, I mean, it's just the point of if I do want to do another small single shop, New York City at the moment is probably, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough scenario, as we know, the rent and everything else that people always talk about. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'm just trying to find out what might be the best way to go about it. The gelato is certainly still very much of interest. In, and as you say, in terms of you make a successful gelato shop and then you can expand it and and roll it out that way so that's um that's something i'm still thinking about for sure at this point in your career you've now become a mentor to some you've had people that work for you that have gone on to do their own projects and they probably hit you up with text messages and now you're helping solve lots of problems for other people that that are folks that learn from you who do you look to uh, as a mentor of all the folks that you've uh, you know worked alongside of and and crossed paths with as you've been doing these guest chefing stints and, and consulting, are there any folks that you kind of lean on hard when you're thinking about making those big decisions? Mm-hmm. Well, mostly Renee uh, over the times when I, when we were opening um, the restaurant uh, and uh, also Dave also Dave Chang to. Uh, We've, um, he's been very helpful, even in terms of the gelato, uh, ideas that I was trying to bounce off with him. So, um, I think those are the two main ones. Also jockey, the, the pastry chef from fat duck back in the day. He's, um, he's someone I still keep in, in great contact with. When there are young people that are maybe just getting started in kitchens or they've got some experience underneath their belt and they're thinking about what their next step should be. Um, is there a piece of advice that you can give someone who's looking to grow their skills and maybe either has the ability to to go stodge somewhere or, or maybe they don't. Maybe they don't have the resources to do that, but they want to be continuing to grow. Mm-hmm. What would you tell them? What do you think in this current climate where people – leave jobs so quickly mm-hmm. what is the best way to kind of build your uh skill set and, and build your resume as mm-hmm. you want to grow i th- i think it's you know looking at all the, the the social media is so easy to sort of get an inkling of what restaurants are doing and what and what's going on and i think it's just the the strongest connection that a young chef has with any of the food that they're seeing and then it's still i, I know it's getting harder to stage even that word is in terms of insurance things with restaurants is, is harder and harder to do, but um, um, to offer your services for a few days just to check it out and see the environment. And and every time you go into a, a new kitchen, it's it's amazing what things come out, what you notice, and, and just uh, it really can spark cool ideas. And But if people do have the resources to go to Europe um, as growing up in North America, I think it's can be super eye-opening. And, and just to see... It's a different take on what food is and 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 how it's uh, thought about. So, 
that that'd be my biggest um suggestion for for the young chefs you just finished up at chef's club you did a residency there you got back in the kitchen clearly it it excited you and it got things firing again for you do you have any plans uh to do any more pop-ups uh upcoming either here or somewhere else i know you're back in greenpoint so you're you're in you're in new york you're living here but i know that you're doing a lot of consulting and traveling so yeah anything upcoming where people can kind of find you and taste yeah. your food there is one even on uh, this coming monday mm-hmm. on december 9th i'm doing dinner with uh, george mendez uh game dinner so a game focused dinner um at aldea uh and then i head to mexico and i'm doing two different uh collaboration dinners one in merida uh and then one in tulum with some friends so uh and i have actually thought about doing some dinners just from my house uh, in Greenpoint. I have a nice setup there. So, um, yeah, I, I think I'll be uh, in the new year. I'll be doing that. I feel like people would be really into that. So <laughs> yeah. you should probably tease that out on Instagram or something and, yeah. and get people excited about that. So, uh, all right, so people should kind of keep up with what you're what you're doing you've got some things percolating some some things brewing in the future and uh who knows maybe we'll see a a gelato shop or a restaurant coming out from you in the next year or so uh chef thanks so much for being here yeah thanks thanks a lot appreciate you sharing uh your story and the trajectory of your career everyone thanks so much for listening you can listen to this episode and all the rest of the episodes of the line on heritageradionetwork.org or anywhere you get your podcast that's spotify twitcher uh itunes podcast so go and download this episode and all the other episodes of the line thanks for listening the line is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content subscribe to our newsletter Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.